With all that now duly out of the way, please take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 6 once again. We will finish this passage, Luke chapter 6, the Sermon on the Plain, as we often call it uh, this morning, and then it will pick up in chapter 7 in a couple weeks. But Luke chapter 6, verses 37 through 49 today. Essentially, at this point in Luke, uh, just to kind of recap, Luke starts off by telling us about uh, the prophecy of John the Baptist and the prophecy of Jesus and takes us through both of their births in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And then uh, it goes from there into the ministry of Jesus, the early life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, him being baptized, starting to preach, starting to perform amazing miracles, starting to teach in various places. And that's essentially where we're at right now is Jesus is teaching people and essentially telling people who he is and why he came to earth as a baby in chapter 2, but why he came in the first place. And our passage today uh, gives us more of Jesus' teaching about what it looks like for those to follow him. If you're going to follow Jesus, what does that even mean? What does that even look like in real life? And chapter 6, verses 37 through 49, is the conclusion of this sermon in which Jesus is telling people what it looks like if you're going to follow him. So let me read aloud verses 37 through 49. Please follow along in your copy of the Bible. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version as I lead us. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable or a proverb. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye, take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck Take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks." Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. At the 2008 Olympics in Beijing, China, Olympic swimmer Michael Phelps was preparing uh, for another race, one of many in which he uh, uh, won gold and uh, in many cases set world records. 
As he was preparing for one particular race, though, he was, he was going through what he called his, his videotape. As he got ready for a race, he had, he had practiced in the exact same way for so many days, for so many months, for so many years of his life. The exact same routine that everything felt exactly as it was supposed to go. So he went through his, his routine as he got ready for this race, got up at the exact right time, did exactly the same thing, one thing after the other as he got ready for this race, as he does every single day. And that included getting ready as he walked up to the starting line, the way he swung his arms, the way he blinked his eyes. Everything was the way it was supposed to be. And so he put his feet on the starting line, they started the race, he jumped into the water, and immediately he knew something was wrong. Drops of water started to, fa- to fall into his goggles. And before he knew it, he could barely see anything. So he got through the first turn. And then the second turn, this was the 200-meter butterfly, which means you swim the length of the pool four times, back and forth, back and forth. And he has water trickling into his goggles the entire time. And by the time he hit the third turn, the last turn, he couldn't see anything in his goggles anymore. So he closed his eyes and didn't panic. He knew exactly what he had to do. This passage before us tells us what it looks like to follow Jesus. And what Jesus does is he lays out a path by which those who follow him can faithfully follow him all the days of their lives. And while it's not as routine, we could say, as what Michael Phelps prepared for, he does tell us that what it takes to faithfully follow Jesus is a level of carefulness, a level of focus that only God can provide by his grace. But this passage tells us that followers of Jesus are careful to prioritize what Jesus prioritizes and to focus on what Jesus focuses on. And so this passage tells us in our first section, verses 37 through 42, that we as Christians need to be careful to focus on your own sin. Isn't it easier for us to focus on someone else's sin? It could be your spouse's sin. It could be your parents' sin or your sibling's sin or some other church member's sin or some random person you hear about in the news. But it's so much easier to be aware of someone else's sin and to keep the focus completely off yourself. But what Jesus says in this first section here, verses 37 to 42, is focus on your own sin first. Be careful to focus on your own sin. Verse 37 is America's favorite verse. Is it not? Judge not, and you will not be judged. People basically say, leave me alone, and I'll leave you alone. Stay out of my business, and I'll stay out of your business. Just mind your own business, and we'll all be fine. And that's America's way of living the Christian life but that's not all that this passage tells us, okay? So what does it mean, though? We, I mean, there are two ways we could look at this. What does it not mean, and what does it mean? So let's just start with what does it mean to judge not, and you will not be judged. To, to not judge someone else, to judge not so you will not be judged, means, first of all, to be gracious, all right? So what this means is we have this, this inclination toward thinking the best in love about other people. Okay, so let's think specifically about in a church context. You see someone else, your you know, impression of them should be a gracious one. Your interaction with them should be characterized by grace. 
And part of this is because you don't know all the factors going on in their life. Okay? You don't know all the details. And you certainly can't know what their motives are behind what they are doing. Now, again, we'll come back. There are other parts that, that tell us we need to actually be asking questions. There are, we do need to actually be in each other's business, if we want to put it that way, biblically speaking. But initially, our inclination should be, I'm going to have a gracious disposition toward other people. Because we don't know all the factors or details. So don't assume the worst and don't assume that you know everything that's pertinent to know. So maybe you're just surprised or even disgusted by the way someone's living. Well, maybe instead of just jumping to conclusions, you should ask questions. Not make accusations, but ask questions. And so maybe that has to do with, you know, um, let me just give a very practical situation. My children go to a public school. Well, that pastor, he obviously doesn't love God because he sends his kids to a public school. That would be an accusation. How about you ask a question? So why do you send your kids to a public school? And that's a totally different subject, so feel free to ask me that after the service. But what I'm just giving is an illustration of what it would look like to have a gracious disposition. You would ask questions with a good spirit. And, and let me just tell you, I'm not saying this because anybody has given me any kind of a hard time about this. I just want to be clear about that. I'm just basically on the spot thinking of an example of what it would look like to have a gracious disposition as opposed to a condemning one. And what this passage tells us to do is to not condemn other people. Judge not, condemn not. These are two synonymous statements. That means they're just saying the same thing lined up next to each other. And these are attitudes that characterize those who follow Jesus, is that you don't condemn other people as a habit, as as an instinct, as your first response. And so we want to resist a fault-finding, condemning, critical spirit. That's part of what it looks like to take your sin seriously first and foremost. So instead of getting your binoculars out and watching your neighbors from across the street trying to find something wrong that you can criticize, or getting your magnifying glass out to look at the speck that Jesus talked about later in the passage, turn the attention on yourself first and be dealing with your own sin. Resist a fault-finding, condemning, critical spirit. Realizing that your understanding of the situation is probably not complete. Realizing that your application of a scriptural principle may not be the only right application of it. Many scriptural principles have lots of applications. And so don't assume that yours is the only way to apply it. Maybe somebody else is applying the same principle simply in a different way. And also your conscience is not always right. Did you realize that? Your conscience is not always right. And I encourage you, again and again and again, we have a book on our table called Conscience that I think is a very helpful discipleship guide in this area. So I would encourage you to get that and read it. And if we're out of them, please let me know that and we'll order more because that's how much we think this is an important subject. But there are areas of our lives that are not cut and dry. Okay, They're not all black and white. And we need, as Christians, to realize that my conscience may not be the only, you know, the only right way of viewing something. And so in areas that are not cut and dry, give room for Christians to have varying levels of conviction uh, about a certain issue. But first and foremost, we need to be careful to focus on our own sin first. And that starts with being gracious toward one another. Secondly, be forgiving. We see this next set of two statements. Forgiven, you will be forgiven. Given, it will be given to you. So the first two, 
Judge not, condemn not. Those are both basically, we could say, negative ideas. And now two positive ideas. Be forgiving and be giving. So be forgiving. To forgive someone means to make a promise to not bring up an offense with three people. All right, so I just mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Let me just review it completely, though, in case you weren't here or in case you were asleep at that point or in case you were writing something else down so you couldn't focus on what I said. For any reason you didn't catch it, let me just say it again. A pr- forgiveness is a promise to, to not do three things. Forgiveness is a promise to not bring it up with yourself. In other words, to be dwelling on it over and over and over again. Okay, so you're not bringing it up with yourself. So if someone sins against you, whether they knew it or not, you're going to choose, if you're forgiving them, to not bring it up with yourself. You're not going to bring it up with somebody else. So you're not going around the church gossiping about it, slandering that person, telling them, did you see what they did to me or hear about what they did to me? So you're not dwelling on it yourself. You're not talking to anybody else about it. And then third, the third promise in forgiveness is you're not bringing it up with them. Now again, that implies that they have already asked for your forgiveness. If they haven't asked for it yet, you can have this spirit, the forgiving spirit, but you actually have not granted them forgiveness yet. And I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, but you're, you're not dwelling on it yourself. You're not gossiping about it or slandering the person with, that, that sinned against you. And you're not bringing it up with the person himself or herself over and over again. And this is very difficult. If the person is, uh, has asked you to forgive him, As a Christian, I can't think of any reason you would say no. Any reason you should say no. And that's on the basis of Ephesians 4 that says, Forgive as you have been forgiven. To what extent has God forgiven you? I mean, can you even begin to list out all the ways you've sinned against him? Can you not realize how heinous your sin is before God and how many times you have sinned against him in those heinous ways. And so as a Christian, I can't think of any examples where we can rightly say, I'm not going to forgive you. If the person has not asked you to forgive him though, him or her, perhaps it's because he has a hard heart and you need to be praying for that person to have a soft heart convicted by the work of the Holy Spirit. But perhaps it's because he or she doesn't know that he or she has sinned against you. And it's not a hard heart issue. It's just they weren't aware that you were offended by what you said or by what you did. And so in that case, the appropriate thing to do is to contact that person. And I would say the best way to do this is in person, if at all possible, though certainly a phone call is a good way to do it. I would keep this out of social media, personally speaking. I would not send someone a message on Twitter or Facebook or a video on TikTok or anything else to ask them for forgiveness or to tell them, I should say, that they need to ask you for forgiveness. Make it in person, if at all possible. The second option in my mind is to to call them. But the the appropriate thing to do if a person doesn't know that they have sinned against you or doesn't seem to be aware of it is to contact that person. And I've had to do this multiple times myself, and it's often not pleasant. It often doesn't go well because you're dealing with two sinners who see sin from different levels, at at different levels. And so uh, perhaps you've had to do this as well, either to ask for forgiveness or to tell someone that they have sinned and that and to tell them that you think that they need to be asking you for forgiveness. Um, but sometimes we, need, we at least need to have the spirit of forgiveness, even if 
we ha- don't have the opportunity to give the gift of forgiveness to someone by them asking for it. And all of this takes the Lord's grace in our lives. Again, if you can put yourself in this situation, maybe you can think back to a scenario where this has happened. Uh, this is very difficult. But the Lord calls us to take our sin seriously and to be forgiving toward other people when they have sinned against us. So I, if you have any questions about that, I hope, uh, I hope that came across clearly. If not, please ask questions about it. If you'd like to read deeper on this subject, let me find the correct book here. Uh, this one by Robert Jones, Robert D. Jones, called Pursuing Peace, A Christian Guide to Handling Our Conflicts. Super important book um, that relates to this passage and many other, particularly New Testament passages, about what it looks like for us to handle sin rightly and take it seriously, but handle it in a biblical way. So be gracious, be forgiving, and then third, be generous. And this is where we see this line, give and it will be given to you. And initially, you want to ask, how does this have anything to do with handling my own sin? How does being generous have anything to do with, with handling my own sin? But part of it is that this, this line sounds a lot like the passage we looked at last week where Jesus says, if somebody asks for your coat, give him your shirt as well. There's kind of like a, you know, a similarity to that command there, reminding us in part that Jesus did not give this sermon in little like bite-sized chunks. He's like, you know, if you're going to preach this sermon 2,000 years later, you're going to want to stop at verse 36. Like Jesus didn't do that. So there's some overlap here for sure. But secondly, when we think of this be generous idea as a synonym for being forgiving, which I think it is because of the judge not, condemn not, okay, the first pair, and now we have a second pair, be forgiving, be giving. I think we can realize that when we are being forgiving, having a a forgiving spirit, we are ourselves being generous, That is itself being very kind and generous. We're choosing not to call to mind someone's sin against us. That is being generous. And I praise God for a wife and for three boys who forgive me all the time for the ways that I sin. If my wife wanted to make a list of the ways I've sinned against her, it would be long. And I would be ashamed for her to share it with anyone. Same with my boys. And so, if they are forgiving me. And they often tell me, you know, when I ask them, they tell me, yes, I forgive you. All the way on down to Andrew. Um, When they tell me, yes, I forgive you, I'm like, that is so generous of you. That is so kind. It sets my heart at ease. And it is a gift to be generous, to be forgiving in this way. So every time someone forgives me, I'm struck by how generous they are toward me. And I think this is what Jesus is calling us to be as well, is to be generous toward one another. And this idea about uh, the measure, I mean, just basically think of like a measuring cup. Maybe we can take it that way. And you pour something into it, and then you kind of tap it on the counter, and it kind of sinks down a little bit, and so you add a little bit more. And then some recipes you read, it says have a heaping tablespoon or a heaping cup. So you just pour more on, and you make a mess on the counter, but that's what it tells you to do. That's the idea here. And so you have this, this measure shaken, shaken out, shaken together, running over. You just have this, this picture of, of a bowl that's just overflowing. And that's, that's this idea of being generous. Fourth, be self-aware first. And this is verse uh, 39 through verse, the beginning of verse 42. Be self-aware first. It's so much easier, as we said a few minutes ago, to see someone else's sin and someone else's fault more clearly than you see your own sin and your own fault. This is especially important uh, in marriage or other respons- uh, close relationships that you take 100% ownership for your sin, for your contribution. If there's friction, 
If there's tension in your marriage or in your sibling relationships or a work relationship, you take the ownership for 100% of your sin. Don't blame shift. Don't cast uh, blame on somebody else. Uh, Again, ideally, somebody else sees their part as well. In a Christian relationship, in a church, ideally, one person sees their sin as being the most significant, and the other person sees their sin as being most significant, and you ask for forgiveness, and you both grant it to each other, and it's as if the sin never happened in the first place. And that's what it looks like to be forgiving. But if somebody else does not take ownership for their part of the sin, even after you've taken your ownership for your part of the sin, wait patiently for the Holy Spirit to bring the conviction. He is the one who convict, who convicts sins, convicts the heart. You do your job. You take ownership for your sin, for your part of the sin, and wait for the Lord to do the work in the other person's heart. And perhaps it's difficult for you to be self-aware. And somebody recently asked me, how do you develop self-awareness about how you come across? And I guess I would say um, one thing to do is, is to ask other people, do I come across as a humble person or as a proud person? Do I come across as like someone who's aloof and standoffish and distant and unconcerned about, about you? Or do I come across as a person who's really warm and generous and kind and wanting to be involved in your life? And so maybe you can think of it this way. Well, I would be curious for you to raise your hand and tell me. If you had uh, broccoli stuck between your teeth, how many of you would want the person you're talking to to tell you that? Would you raise your hand to, to tell me that? Okay, most of you would. Um, you know, a couple years ago, one of my professors at Southern Seminary, uh, when I was there for a couple weeks for a class, uh, had like this green ball like bead thing stuck in his hair from a tree like a holly tree or something that he had walked through on the way into the classroom I was kind of like um Dr. Merkel (laughs) you have something stuck in your like he really appreciated it because he was about to teach for like two hours without going to look in a mirror and didn't know that he had something stuck in his hair it's it's kind to let somebody know that something is stuck between their teeth or in their hair and when we think of sin it's the same way You may not know that you have spiritual broccoli stuck between your teeth, but somebody else can see it or can smell it, and they can help you identify that. And so it is actually being very kind uh, to to tell somebody that. But sometimes we don't know that, so that's why I'm saying be self-aware, and one of the ways to do that is to ask other people how you come across, what you look like, spiritually speaking. And then fifth, okay, and this is the part where Initially, I I was going to put all the emphasis on this last part, and I realized, no, the emphasis is on dealing with your sin, not somebody else's. But a significant part of handling your own sin rightly is also helping other people become aware of their sin as well. So this last line of verse 42, Jesus does not tell you, leave other people's sin alone. Don't ever talk about it. Don't ever breathe about it. Don't write about it. Don't think about it. Leave other people's sin alone. No, he doesn't say that. He says, deal with your sin. Get the log out of your eye. And then you're in the position to take the speck out of somebody else's eye. Their sin. And so, be attentive is the fifth attitude we should have in the way that we handle our own sin. Yes, we should handle our sin first. But we should also help other people handle their sin. Uh, we should want someone to tell us 
that we are sinning. Okay, that is, that is the right spirit, is for us to want people's input in our lives. Guess what? I need your input in my life. I need you to tell me what my blind spots are because I am unaware of them. And you need that help as well. And that's why God has given us the body. That's why God has given us each other. So Jesus doesn't say condone someone's sin and ignore someone's sin. He says deal with your sin and then help the other person deal with their sin. And that's, you know, certainly its own sermon on its own right. But in my notes, it's a small paragraph. (laughs) Because I think that's, in this passage, it's a small paragraph, right? It's a small note. Jesus is putting the emphasis on your attitude. Be generous. Be gracious. Don't be judgmental and con- condemnatory. Be forgiving. Be generous. Be self-aware first and then be attentive to other people's sins. So careful disciples handle sin in a gracious, forgiving, generous, self-aware, and attentive way. So be careful to focus on your sin first. Secondly, be careful to focus on the heart, not just the fruit. And you know this is connected to what Jesus just said. He didn't have this long pause and then start talking about something unrelated. He's saying something related. We know that because the first word of verse 43 is the word for. Because what comes from the heart is most important. The heart is where we need to put our focus, not just the fruit. The fruit here being our actions, our reactions, our words, what's visible, okay? So in other words, at our uh, house in Alabama, we had, uh, a, we had a variety of trees in our yard, but in our backyard, we had a fig tree. Unfortunately, we don't really like figs. They're fine, but a whole tree of them, that no thanks. We let other people come and pick the figs for us. We also had a muscadine vine. Unfortunately, we also don't like muscadines, which are like these huge golf ball-sized grapes that have a seed the size of a pea inside them, and they have a very thick skin and not that good of a flavor to them, in my mind. Some people really like muscadines. Treat yourself, but that's okay. We didn't want a whole vine of them. But how did we know we had a muscadine vine? Because it had muscadines on it. How did we know we had a fig tree? Because it didn't have peaches and it didn't have apples. It had figs on it. And what Jesus is saying is just a simple biological fact. You know what kind of roots you have by the kinds of fruits that are hanging on the tree. You know whether a person has a good heart or a bad heart by whether they have good fruit or bad fruit. And so the focus for the Christian should be not on what is visible, but on what is invisible. How do you know whether someone has a good heart, a heart that honors God? Do they do what Christians are supposed to do? That's, you see the fruit that tells you what kind of root they have, what their nature is like. And when, it's, when Jesus says in verse 45 that out of the heart the mouth speaks, which is the point he's driving at here when he's talking about the kinds of trees, whether you have grapes or, uh, or figs or brambles or thorn bushes, what he's trying to get at is this heart, and that's not talking about the organ in your body that pumps blood. He's talking about your, your like motivation center inside of you, your whole spiritual being, what it is that makes the decisions, spiritually speaking, for you. And he says that our heart is based on what we treasure, what we hold to be most important, what we want and desire and value the most. And so... Uh, A retired NFL coach, Bill Parcells, once said, you are what your record says you are. In other words, the Lions are 1-10-1 and and right now, I think. No one's going to say the Lions are Super Bowl contenders. 
You are what your record says you are. You've won one game early. Well, we won't stop talk about any other NFC North teams with that. But I'm just saying, you are what your record says you are. And Jesus would say, you are what your heart says you are. But the way you know what your heart is is by the kind of fruit that you are bearing. And so we as Christians do need to be fruit inspectors. Going back to the end of verse 42, we do need to be able to take the speck out of someone else's eye. It is our job to help other Christians with their sin. It is not our job to ignore other Christians' sin. Jesus himself says to inspect the fruit to be able to tell what the root is like, what the person's heart nature is like. And so years ago, uh, someone uh, encouraged me to memorize this statement, which is that you do what you do and you say what you say because you think what you think. You think what you think because you believe what you believe about God, His Word, and yourself. So all your actions... And your words are tied to your thoughts. And your thoughts are tied to your beliefs. And I would go one step further. You believe what you believe because you love what you love. Okay, I think we need to go one step further. We're not just a bunch of decision makers. We do things without thinking about it. We're like a fish in water. They don't know they're in water. And so you are what you love is, is an accurate statement for us to make. How do you know what you love? Again, by the fruits that you see. And so you believe what you believe because you love what you love. And um, we are responsible before God for what we love, for the way that that affects the way that we live then. So verses 43 and 44, when Jesus is talking about these different kinds of trees with different kinds of fruit, he's simply making the point that a person's behavior reflects their nature. We didn't expect peaches to grow on our fig tree. And we would have been foolish and liars if someone had said, what kind of tree is that? Uh, It's a peach tree. Why does it have figs on it then? Well, because we're liars. (laughs) That's all we'd be able to say. And so a person's behavior reflects their nature and what you value reveals itself in what you do. So many times it's tempting for us to blame our relationships. It's my wife's fault that I am who I am. She's the one who makes me whatever, do whatever. Or we could say it's my circumstances. I have a terrible job. Um, I, I grew up in a terrible, hateful environment. Um, I mean, you name it. It's the circumstances around me. Well, no, what I would say is that relationships and circumstances are heart revealers. They don't determine your heart. They reveal what's already in your heart. When you put a tea bag in hot water, you're not surprised that it, you know, your orange tea bag tastes like orange tea. You would be surprised if your orange tea bag tastes like cinnamon tea. And so you, what you value reveals itself in what you do. And so we want to ask ourselves, what is it that I love? What is it that I value? What is it that I prioritize? And all of these reveal what we love, reveal, in other words, our heart, reveal our treasure. And our hearts are nasty places. This is why we do bad things. Not because of our circumstances, not because of the other people in our lives, because our hearts are bad, nasty places. And so this is why Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17, 9, our hearts are deceitful. And this is why in Numbers, I believe, chapter 15, the Lord himself says, don't follow your heart. What does he say to follow? The Lord. Those are the two options. In other words, your heart is bad to follow, The Lord is good to follow. And 
when someone says, I'm just following my heart. No, don't do that. That's going to lead you in bad places because your heart is deceitful beyond all measure. And so when someone has angry words and angry actions, maybe they kick something. I've done this. You probably have too. It's embarrassing to admit that. But if you were in my shoes, I hope you would admit it as well. When someone kicks something, it's not because their foot just has this sporadic kicking motion. It's because you have an angry heart. You have an angry heart because you value what you value. Proud words and actions come from a proud heart. Sexually immoral actions and thoughts come from sexually immoral hearts. We need to, yes, be aware of the fruits, but realize that they all come back to what's at the heart, what's at the root. I once came up to a car in a junkyard. And in the back, the trunk was open. And in the back trunk of the car was a dead dog that was just rotting to high heavens. It was unbearable to smell it. But imagine if somebody wanted to sell that car from that junkyard and all they did was close the trunk and give somebody the keys. You can have it for 10 bucks. (laughs) It's about as much as it's worth. And the person drives away and goes, man, what's that smell? And they get out there, Febreze. Just spray a bunch of Febreze. Get in the car the next day. Wow, it smells even worse today. More Febreze. How is that really solving the problem? You still have a stinking dead dog in the back of your car. Open the trunk and see what the real problem is. It would be totally pointless because the problem would still be there. Uh, Similarly, when my dad was diagnosed with cancer, it was after months of him, at his doctor's suggestion, rubbing Icy Hot on his leg. Icy Hot is not designed to deal with the femur bone that is disappearing because the cancer is eating away at it. So, you know, I, I, and I have nothing against my dad's doctor. You know, they, they ran the right tests at the right times and all of that. But all that to say, Icy Hot is not designed to deal with a deteriorating bone. Many of you probably use Icy Hot. It's probably a great product. But it's for certain problems, not ultimate problems. And sometimes we as Christians are tempted to assume that the problem of sin is only skin deep. And so we spray Febreze... Or we rub icy hot on our sin and we're surprised that the problem is still there. That we still have an angry heart. But that's the real problem. That our heart is still wicked. That we still want things that we should not want. And this is why we read uh, Hebrews chapter 8 about the new covenant. That God gives us a new heart. That all those who have put their hope in Christ have a new heart. And we talked in Sunday school. Why then don't we... Live perfect lives because we're still, we still have indwelling sin. We still have remaining sin. But we as Christians need to stop being satisfied with just evaluating and adjusting the fruit in our lives or in someone else's life. Careful disciples evaluate the heart, not just the fruit. And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian, what we're saying and what we believe here at Brainerd is that our hearts are the problem, not the fruit in our lives. That means we can't just work harder at fixing the problems on our own. We can't just say, well, I'm going to replace this bad habit. Well, Christian discipleship does involve replacing bad habits with good habits. Absolutely. We should work to root out the bad habits in our hearts by God's grace. But our problem is not just our bad habits. Our problem is our bad hearts. And so we actually can't solve the problem ourselves. That's the bad news. The good news is that Jesus didn't have an evil heart. 
He's the only person who's ever lived who didn't have an evil heart. And because of that, he never sinned. He never had even a single piece of bad fruit. And when he was executed on a cross, and then he was buried that evening, he buried our sins with him. And he took the guilt that we earned and buried that in the grave too. And when he miraculously came back to life three days later, he made it so that whoever believes in his sacrifice for our sins, for our bad hearts, would receive his righteousness. And that means that when we stand before God, God looks at us as those who have been perfectly wiped clean. We are as righteous as Jesus is. That is a miracle. That is amazing. And that is why we gather to worship. Because we have no more guilt before God. And so what we urge you to do if you are here and not a Christian is to look to Jesus as the only solution to your bad heart, to your sinfulness. And so if, if you uh, have any questions about that, we would love for you just to catch any one of our members after our service and talk to us about that. Ask us questions about that. And if you're one of our members and you're not sure what you would say in that, congregation, in that conversation, I should say, uh, I would grab one of those red booklets on the back table that says, Who is Jesus? And go read that like five times this afternoon. And then quiz yourself with somebody else and say, you know, ask me any question about the gospel and see if you can get on the, the track uh, from, from that booklet. Or take the booklet Two Ways to Live and read that five times through and just keep meditating and marinating your heart in the truth of the gospel so that when somebody asks you a question that you're not sure how to answer, you can take them to the right places because you are so familiar. You've become so familiar with what the gospel is and how to explain it clearly. But the bottom line is our heart is the problem But God offers us a new heart for all who believe that Jesus is the only Savior, the only solution to our wicked hearts. So be careful to focus on your sin, first of all. If you're going to follow Jesus, be careful to focus on your sin, first of all. Be careful to evaluate the heart, not just the fruit. And then lastly, in verses 46 through 49, be careful to obey God's revealed word, to focus on God's revealed word, focus on obeying God's word. This, this last little kind of word picture that Jesus draws is very easy for us to understand. You just think of somebody whose house is, um, is close to an ocean. And I often wonder, why do people live in Florida? Like, nice place to visit, I'm sure. But why would you build a beautiful house where hurricanes come? And the reason people do it, I guess, psychologically speaking, is they assume it's not going to happen to me. And maybe if they've lived there for decades and decades and it hasn't happened to them yet, they're proving themselves right. But that doesn't mean that next August, the next one isn't going to hit your house. And what Jesus is is drawing out here is a wise person has a really good foundation so that when a storm comes, it can stay standing. The house can stay standing. You know, the foundation's invisible, though. No one drives to Burr Ridge or Hinsdale or Highland Park and says, wow, look at those foundations. Those are amazing. Like, no, you look at the, the part above the foundation. But what Jesus says the foundation is, is doing God's word. And he uses three verbs here. Everyone who comes and hears and does them. And that takes us back to verse 18, that people came to hear him. And what he's saying is, I've told you what it looks like to be a careful disciple. I've told you what it looks like to follow me. But it's not enough just to hear what I've said. You have to be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. This is the way that James takes it. 
And so we need to be careful to hear and then to obey God's revealed word. It's not enough just to uh, you know, hear the right words. And so if you want to fall into a black hole on the internet, uh, just Google the words Sharon's pumpkin pie. And I don't know if any of you have done this yet or have heard these things. If I didn't have a wife who had a Facebook account, I wouldn't know anything about it. But a woman on Thanksgiving burnt her pumpkin pie to a crisp and then blamed Murray calendars for it. And basically the idea is the instructions were on the box and evidently she didn't follow the instructions on the box and so she has this black crispy pumpkin pie and she blamed the people who made the pie in the box. And I just looked at that and thought, that is a perfect sermon illustration. Thank you very much, Sharon Weiss of whatever place you live in. Because that is our human heart, is to say, it's somebody else's fault that I did what I did. I wasn't the one that put my pie in the oven for seven hours or whatever, however long she did it, you know? It was the pie maker's fault. If they had made it where I could leave it in for seven hours, it would be okay. I don't know how long it was in the oven. Maybe she did it the right way, and it really was Marie Callender's fault, but it's still a good sermon illustration. So just bear with me there. But what I'm saying is don't blame somebody else for your sin. And that goes back to take responsibility for the log in your eye first. Hearing and obeying God's word reveals a firm foundation, but hearing and ignoring God's word brings destruction. And that destruction is simply saying, on the last day, you will stand before God and he will say, why in the world did you say, Lord, Lord? Maybe you had your theology right, but your practice betrayed what you said you believed. Why would you say, I am a Christian, but you don't live the way that Christians live? And we don't want to be super careful here to say that this is not how you get saved, by obeying. No, we are not trusting in our performance. But the way that we obey reveals that we have been changed on the inside out, that we have been given the new hearts of the new covenant. So no one is saved because they obey God's word. We obey God's word because we have been saved, because we have been given this new heart. Outside of my office, I have a wooden plaque that has four words on it. And the, the idea uh, comes from a, a guy named Paul Tripp uh, in, in several books that he's written. But I see this plaque every day, and it summarizes in four words what I try to do every single day and in every single sermon, in every single conversation I have. And the four words are love, know, K-N-O-W, love, know, speak, and do. Those are the four words on this plaque. And the idea is you love people, you get to know them, and what their, their problem is that they're talking to you about, if that's the, the context. And you speak the truth to them. You tell them what God has said. And you help them do what is right. And this passage is, is focusing on that doing part. Especially this last part about building your house on the rock. It is not enough to just tell someone, go be warmed and filled and not do something. And, and so here in this case, it's not enough to, to say, Jesus, you are the Lord of everything, but I'm going to live life my way just going to keep doing what I like to do and not worry about what you tell me to do. If our actions don't back up our claim, then calling Jesus Lord does nothing. We need to be doers of the word, not hearers only. And so this passage tells us, in other words, that it's possible for someone to claim to follow Jesus, to call themselves a Christian, even to call themselves a member of Brainerd Avenue Baptist Church, and yet not be a doer of God's words. In our lives, this passage tells us, this last paragraph here tells us that our lives rise or fall 
on whether we do what God has called us to do as Christians. This is why we take it so seriously when we sin against one another. This is why we take sin so seriously in our individual lives and here as a church. Because we need to be people who are careful disciples, careful to do exactly what Jesus has called us to do, not just to hear the words, but then to do them as well. Careful disciples are people who focus on your own sin first, focus on the heart, not behavior, not just behavior, and are fo- who focus on doing the word, not just hearing the word. When Michael Phelps hit the wall on his third turn, he could see absolutely nothing. He couldn't see the line on the bottom of the pool that told him he was staying in his lane. He couldn't see the black T on the ground telling him that he was coming up to the last line, to the, to the, last, to the final wall that he needed to touch in the race. He could see absolutely nothing. So the words that went through his mind were what his coach tells him every single day. Put in the videotape. And all that is is a way of saying, you have this whole thing memorized. You know exactly what to do in every single circumstance in your day. So put in the videotape. And he could tell just by feel, because he had done it so many thousands upon thousands of times, exactly where he was in the pool. So he started counting his strokes. He knew exactly how many strokes it would be before he touched the wall. 18, 19 strokes, 20 strokes. And he he could feel, okay, I should be almost at the wall, but I've got one more. And so he gave it all he had. And he reached for the wall this whole time with his eyes closed. And he touched the wall. And the place erupted. And he wasn't sure if they were erupting for him or for somebody else. So he took his goggles off, looked up at the clock, and it had his name, and it said W-R after his name. He set a world record with his eyes closed because he was so focused on what he had to do as a swimmer. Christians, in a far more important realm of life, we must be those Christians who take seriously and focus on every word that God has given us. We take our own sin seriously. We focus on the heart, not just the fruit. And we focus on doing what God has said, not just hearing it. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we pray that you would indeed make us careful disciples, those who see that this is the most important realm in the world. We pray that we would be people who are devoted to you and your kingdom above all else. And we pray that we would recognize our need for your grace in every part of this process of becoming faithful followers of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.